From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with George Singleton about his new book, Asides, Occasional Essays. George Singleton writes with heart and a humor that will resonate with most folk, but particularly with those of us raised in the South. In this collection of fascinating and curious essays, George explains how he came to be a writer, how life ends Henry Gibson is to blame for his literary education, and why Aristotle would have been a failed philosopher had he grown up in South Carolina. George, welcome back to The Journal. It's been too long. Yeah, thank you, Walter. I guess I need to explain to our listeners. They know who George Singleton is. He grew up in Greenwood, South Carolina, and he's now at Walford. He had a an interesting teaching career. Well, I'm not a, I hadn't been at Wofford since uh, COVID, so I, I, re, I retired uh, oh. 2000. Oh. oh, okay. All right, I'm sorry. That's all right. I thought you were too young to be retired. I was 62 and a half, and that was it for me. Okay. So you are just, you're just now turning out beautiful, funny stories. Oh, thank you. I heard that Jill McCorkle just said something very nice about you recently. <laughs> Yeah, she did one of those things for the New York Times that, uh, you know, what's on your reading, what's on your nightstand and all that. And one question was, uh, who do you read that makes you laugh? And she said, George Singleton's The Curious Lives of uh, Nonprofit Martyrs. If people don't laugh reading George, they don't have a pulse. <laughs> wow. I, I owe her some money. <laughs> well, it's it, it's about true. And some of the stories we can talk about on the air and some of them— Well, no. Yeah. We, we can't. <laughs> Alfred's already told me I can't do use the cat litter story. Oh. <laughs> I, I think that's, that would be a bit that's, much. That's true. Well, but then people, if they get get his latest book, Asides, they can do it on their own. I, I would start with that with that essay. Okay. Um, let's talk a few minutes about you. You were born in California. Yep. And how did you end up in Greenwood, South Carolina? Uh, my, I was born in California. Uh, my father, gosh, he had cancer in 1960. He was like 35 years old. He fell 45 feet into the hold of a empty hold of a merchant ship in 1963, broke 57 bones. They brought him in uh, up the Columbia River in Oregon, a small hospital. They started just shooting him up with morphine uh, at the beginning. After a few days, some good country doctor said, let's start patching him up. And back then, they didn't have hip surgery like they do now. They just started putting nails in his hips. And that was in 63. In 65, we moved to South Carolina because that's where his father and stepmother lived. So you had a family connection. Yes. My grandfather lived in Greenwood. And you have a lot to say about Greenwood in your in your in your stories. You know, it has the widest main street in the United States, second second biggest population of uh, albino squirrels, uh, and it's got a train museum. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and so you grew up in Greenwood, uh, which is kind of fodder for some of your stories. Well, I think any small southern town. You know, I'm one of those people. You know, I'm 65 now. I couldn't wait to get out of Greenwood when I was 18 years old. But then the older I get, the more I want to go. 
I love going back to Greenwood and going to, you know, old restaurants that I used to go as a child and just driving around, um, going up to Hodges, South Carolina is where, actually where my grandfather ended up moving. But any small town, you know, in, in the, I'd say in South Carolina, you know, I have one essay in here about how Aristotle couldn't live in South Carolina because he was, he believed in moderation and everything in South Carolina is excess, you know, <laughs> uh, and I think that's good for a writer. I mean, it's good for, it's just fodder. Yeah. Well, you, you, you mentioned Hodges and uh, you used to go hear bands up there, right? Oh yeah. Jackson Station. That was a, just kind of a magical, weird place run by uh, Gerald Jackson and his partner, Steve Bryant. And you know, something bad happened where Cheryl got into a scuffle. A guy hit him in the head with a pickaxe. He was uh, here in Columbia at the VA hospital for years and years and years. And Jackson Station uh, just kind of died off, you know. But people don't understand that band circuit. Oh, Jackson yeah. Station was on a uh, – it was not in a metropolis, but it it's uh, where I would say second-tier bands – or, or bands on the rise, you know, uh, yeah, like, that's, yeah, like all those bands from Athens and from Atlanta, you know, a lot of them are a lot of bands going from Atlanta to Charlotte or, you know, somewhere else. You know, Bob Margolin, the blues blues guy who used to play with Muddy Waters was there often. What's that guy? Uh, Nappy Brown, who lived in this area. Uh, he was there a lot. No, Widespread Panic. They, they played there. They, they were great bands. The Accelerators. It was fun. And so for somebody in, as a young teenager, this was a really a great place to go. Oh, it was. Uh, I think they opened up when I was 17 or 18. Back then, you could drink when you were 18 in South Carolina. And then when I was in college, you know, I went to Furman. A lot of my friends were from up north. They kind of made fun of the South, I guess. And I went, come on, stay with my parents for a weekend. I'm going to take you to this bar. And boy, they just fell in love with that place. Yeah. Yeah. You're at Furman and you're majoring in philosophy. Yeah. That was, I don't know what, I don't know what, uh, you know, I took a f my first class, you know, intro to philosophy, my first trimester there and loved it, you know, and then I took some more classes and by the end of my sophomore year, my father, who had a 10th grade education, real blue collar guy, and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I guess I'll go to law school. And he said, do you want to go to law school? And I said, not really. Everybody I'm in classes with, they are going to law school. I, I can't stand these people. And he said, <laughs> why would you go work a job for 45 years that you hate or around people that you don't like? Do what you want to do. And I said, well, I really want to study philosophy and I want to be a writer. And he said, okay, do that. So I did. You know, that was great. Thank you, Dad. After I graduated with my degree in philosophy and I was a house painter, I was a dishwasher, I worked at a Budweiser warehouse thing. Uh, you had totem privileges or took totem privileges yeah. in the warehouse, right? Yeah. That's what that's one of your stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of maybe well, you know, I took that I made a B in ethics, so I you know, if I'd have made an A, I wouldn't have been stealing beer, but uh <laughs> My father used to call me up like at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I would just be getting in. I'd say hello. And he'd say, hey, I'm looking at the want ads. I don't see philosopher for hire. Ha, ha, ha. And he'd hang up the phone on me. He did that a lot. <laughs> hey, well, but actually, he did what a dad, if you want to do it, do it. He he was, that was great. Yeah. that He just gave his approval. He did not. He died when I was 23 or 24, so he, 
I had a manuscript of a, you know, a bad novel, first thing I wrote in college and right out of college, and I had it hidden, I thought, in the basement. One of those other times that he called, he started just reading from it. He had found the manuscript. And then, and I'd stolen some, one of his stories, I think, and he said, that's not really how it happened. And then he started telling me how something really happened. I said, I know, Dad, but I got to make things up. It's fiction, you know, and just because the way things happen doesn't make it all that interesting in fiction. But he knew that I was writing, so that's good. Okay. And your first big hit. Because well, the first story I ever had accepted, like at Southwestern Journal, I thought that was a big hit just because it was the first thing. But the first big thing where I got paid a little bit was Playboy uh, magazine back in 90, 1993. And that caused you some trouble. A friend who'd supported your writing and you gave him a copy of Playboy with your article in it. Oh, and then his uh, his, his, his daughter got all mad. Yeah, I mean, he was an adult. He was like, he lived next door to me as I was growing up. And then his daughter, who's uh, evangelical, has just badmouthed me ever since, I think. Uh, yeah. And his, this man's, I don't even want to mention their names, but his grandson is a great writer and a scholar up at Appalachian State now. Um, he's the one who told me about this whole story. I didn't even know about it. Yeah, they didn't realize that uh, serious writers wrote him Playboy. I, that, I don't think that story had a curse word in it. It had it, no sex, no naked people. It was uh, that's probably the most that's probably the most family friendly story I've ever written. Speaking of families, uh, you found your fifth cousin twice removed, or she found she you. found me. Now that we got to explain to some folks about how I mean, Southerners do track people down, but you don't think she really is your fifth cousin twice removed. I think she probably is, but you know, that's the reason why I won't do that ancestry dot com. I don't want people a to find me or anything. But this woman wrote a letter to the college where I worked to like the communications department. And she said, did you know that George Singleton's great-grandfather was shot and killed in a, as he was trying to rob a store in Augusta, Georgia, back in the 30s? And so the communications person sent me, forward me the email. And I went, well, what the heck? Did she think I should get fired or something because I got some ne'er-do-well in my background? So I wrote the woman back and said, you know, what's this all about? And she said she was doing Ancestry.com. Somehow we're fifth cousins twice removed, blah, blah, blah. The guy was, my great-grandfather was a dentist, too, but it was right after the uh, Depression, you know, and he wanted to have money to buy Christmas presents. It's a story, but he got he got shot and killed. And then it was in all these newspapers. She sent me uh, articles from, like, Richmond, Virginia, Augusta, Columbia, all over, you know, all over the Southeast. His name was Marcus Vaughn. And, and where was he li actually living at the time? That he, he was in Augusta. Augusta. He lived in Augusta, yeah. Do you keep in touch with this Ken's person? No, no. <laughs> no, I don't. I think I've changed my email twice or three times just so that doesn't happen again. Well, you know, folks, do particularly Southerners and especially South Carolinians, do like to trace the family tree. Although if you go back to saying you're descended from a 1670 settler of South Carolina, and they're not all of those many 1670s. Going back that far, you have something like 16,000 direct forebears. Now, you're tra tracking wow. one family line. Yeah. Who did all, what did all the others yeah. do or yeah. not do? Yeah. So let's talk about some of your, your stories. And I, I think it's interesting who your literary model was, or your, your excuse me, your favorite writer 
which you'd have to know 60s TV, your writing mentor. Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson. Now, most folks don't know Henry Gibson. If you didn't watch Laugh-In. Or uh, Murder, She Wrote. He was on Murder, She Wrote a lot. He um, was also in uh, Nashville, that great he movie. He was in Nashville. Yeah. 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 But I didn't know he wrote. I did not know he wrote. Oh, he wrote those little poems yes. on Laugh-In. And, you know, growing up, I didn't think anything was fun. I didn't think he could write anything funny. Uh, later, like in high school, when I was reading like Wuthering Heights and all the Charles Dickens and Ethan Frome and stuff, I went, man, these things are, you know, depressing. But Henry Gibson and those little poems I thought were funny, you know. And now, nowadays, all my Southern writer friends, they all say, I started reading Faulkner when I was 12 years old and I finished reading all of Faulkner when I was 13. I go, really? And then, you know, another one said, I never didn't read Faulkner that early. It was Thomas Wolfe for me. And I'm going, I read Henry Gibson while he was on, I didn't even read him, just heard him on Laugh-In. Well, and interestingly, because I went and checked uh, Gibson and he started his career doing comic stand-up comedy and he portrayed a poet from Fairhope, Alabama. Oh, I've been to Fairhope, and it's right next to Mobile, where that's, you're that's, from. Yeah, that's where I grew up. I mean, you know, so here's a guy from Philadelphia who makes his started his career pretending he was from the Deep South. Now, that's got to say something about our humor. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that about, about him. You know, I met him at the in Greenwood, the Festival of Flowers. Yeah. He was the Grand Marshal one year, and my parents had a friend named Tom Reynolds who was— uh, in charge of the their seed catalog. He was an artist. And he got Henry Gibson here. So I ran this 10-mile race, and I didn't run very well. I had a sprained big toe, which hurts to run with. But then when I got – yeah, I got a trophy or whatever for my age group, and Henry Gibson gave it to me, and I was uh, I was starstruck. <laughs> I was also only uh, 17 years old, and I was probably a foot taller than he, he was. A, he was a, a, a short man. Well, is there anything from that essay that you would like to read about Henry, or is that— I'll read anything. Well, well, how about— <laughs> Something you wrote, preferably. Yes, yeah, something, something <laughs> you know, Elmer Fudpucker. Uh, oh. Now, that is a real person, Alfred. I'm not making— Oh, we're, we're, what is that? Sex symbol of the South. I'll read that. Yeah. Do I need to do a disclaimer? <laughs> <laughs> mm, I don't think so. If I, if I'm I, kidding. If I'm I come kidding. across a bad word, I'll—, I'll yeah, I mean, just say beep. Elma Fudpucker was a real person. Oh yeah, yeah. Gosh, I wish I had pictures. I'll take a picture of the album. I have an album on my bookshelf that I'll send to y'all. Okay, here we go. It's called the Sex Symbol of the South. Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Elmer Fudpucker Senior. I have no clue what any of this means or how it happened. Trust me on this one. A man named Elmer Fudpucker Sr. showed up at our house more than once for three days at a time, back when I might have been 13 and 14 years old. He showed up in a black limousine with a man named Lester Vanador. I didn't get it. Why would these people be showing up to our little 1,400-square-foot house? My father's friend, Mr. Beasley, the public defender, had something to do with it. Somehow, on the side, he worked Nashville singer-songwriter contracts. I'm serious. And somehow, at least once, he brought Mr. Vanador and Elmer Fudpucker Sr. down to Greenwood, South Carolina. Go to Google and type Elmer Fudpucker Sr. See that photo from his album, Sex Symbol of the South. It's that dude. 
famous among truckers with 8-track players back in the day. For some reason, I thought that Lester Vanador worked as a manager for Elmer, but that's not true. A, Elmer's real name is Hollis Champion. B, Lester was a singer-songwriter in his own right. Aside, while looking up stuff, I found out these two men had something to do with Mac Vickery and that he wrote a song called Meat Man and that Jerry Lee Lewis covered it. It's amazing. Go listen to Meat Man and then come back here. Uh, and a couple of things, being a historian, I looked up Hollis Champion, and he's from Decatur, Alabama. Yes, yes, I knew that, yeah. Which is the other end of the state. Yeah. I mean, being from the Gulf Coast, that's just a part of the world we don't— It's a a different world. It's a a different world. And I thought, Jerry Lee Lewis, I pulled up the lyrics to Meat Man, and they are perfectly—they're vanilla. Yeah, yeah. But silly. And if you pull pull up, you can get a YouTube performance of Jerry Lee. Really? On— Meat Man at the piano, and he's doing his one hand and the other one off. Uh, he's, he's got a ring that must be about four inches in diameter, you know, and just still. He's a complicated man, but an amazing performer. Yes. Yes. So you didn't, you know, down here we don't have to make up stuff. No, no. And it's just just kind of falls in your lap. In that essay, I think I mentioned that. First time I went to Nashville, Tennessee to go see a buddy of mine who was at Vanderbilt, we ended up in one of those honky-tonk bars. I think it's called the Music City Lounge. It's no longer there, of course, on uh, Lower Broad Street. Well, that's all gentrified now. It's all, it's uh, cost a bazillion dollars. And who's there but Elmer Fudpucker Sr. And I went up and reintroduced myself. I don't think he remembered, but he, he feigned to remember. But now really, how did they get to your house? Don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> I have no—well, through Mr. Beasley, and I guess Mr. Beasley was my dad's friend, said, oh, let's go on over, and uh, my dad was known to maybe um, do a little bit of drinking and, and kind of in, in binge kind of ways. Sometimes that we would have these three-day parties at our house where I'd kind of hid in the basement. I was going to say, you were hiding in the basement with uh, all Yeah, it was just kind of embarrassing and, and scary. You know, you're a little kid, and everybody's kind of drunk and dancing upstairs. It's— uh, I think that's why I took up running, just to get away, you know, get away from the house. All right. Do you still run? Crap, no. I got hurt. Uh, <laughs> I was hurt a lot. But my senior year, uh, I ripped an oblique, you know, kind of down here doing, I had a coach who was maybe not the brightest this track is, This coach. is at Furman, right? It's a Greenwood. Greenwood. But Furman had already contacted me, Coach Kiesling, and said, hey, apply here. We'll, uh, you don't even have to pay, you know, so, ooh, that saved me $25 or whatever. I ended up still going, but my senior year, I never really ran because I ripped that oblique. My doctor in Greenwood said, you have gas, and gave me, I thought I was having an appendicitis. <laughs> he gave me these pills for about six weeks, and I went, I, I don't think it's gas, you know, doc. <laughs> uh, and then when I got to Furman, uh, Coach Kiesling saw me, like, in the student center and said, what happened to you? You know, you never ran your senior year, and he Explain, and he got me to a doctor and said he he ripped an oblique and it'll um, it'll heal in a, in a couple years and it did. But by that time, you know, I kind of started writing and thinking that to be a writer you had to smoke and drink like crazy. And so my running days, and I was kind of bored with running anyway. I did it from age thirteen to eighteen. And so what what did you run? Were you doing long distance? Long distance, yeah. I was a two miler, and 
you know, I ran this race here in Columbia one time when I was 17 years old called the Governor's Cup, and it's five miles. And I did that in like 27 minutes and some odd seconds. And I, in the 10th grade, I ran a two mile in 10 minutes and 20 seconds. So I was on my way. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I could run, but I, I, was, I was kind of bored. And it, it helped me as a writer. I talked to my buddy Ron Rash, who was a runner, and we both say, and neither of us have run in years, decades, but both of us say it's what m- made us learn how to sit down for a couple hours every morning because, you know, if you get up and run for an hour every morning, you just kind of get used to that routine. All right. After you graduate from Furman, you kind of bounced around. I bounced around quite a bit. And I, um, you know, I had those kind of odd jobs. Then I went to a graduate school for an MFA at George Mason for one semester. I was 22, 23 years old, 23. I didn't love it. I thought everybody else was like 90 in my class. They were probably 30. I ran out of money. I didn't know how to, I didn't get any kind of uh, stipend or anything. And so I was painting houses, working construction. On, and I stayed there one semester. Then my dad got sick and died. And I came back to Greenwood and ran his little textile supply company for two or so, two and a half years. Then textiles, you know, fell apart almost immediately. All of our mills were gone. And then, and I was still writing all this time, you know, bad stuff. And I reapplied to UNC Greensboro and then went there for two years, which is probably the best two years of my life writing-wise because, you know, they said, here, you got to take a couple classes, but get your butt in the chair and write. And people who did it, you know, wrote and and continue to write. And who are you working with there? Fred Chappell. Okay. Uh, Fred Chappell, Lee Zacharias, uh, a man named uh, Bob Watson, Robert Watson, that was it for for workshops, really. Well, and, and then you you started teaching, and it's it's in some of your stories. Uh, and as a former teacher, I can say some good things and some bad things. Not about your stories, yeah. but just about the experiences. Yeah, I, and um, you know, I taught down at Francis Marion from '86 until '91, and you know that also that's when I started writing short stories because I was teaching four class. You know, teaching is not digging ditches or anything; it's not roofing. But it takes up a lot of time grading papers and all that. And I thought, man, I got to grade all these papers. I had 100 students. They were writing an essay a week at least. Um, so I started writing short stories. But by this time, I had written three horrendous um, manuscripts for novels. So I had kind of found a little bit of a voice. And, and I also started reading short stories a lot more and kind of went from there. Things started clicking then. I think the titles of your books tell us a lot. These People Are Us, The Half Mammals of Dixie, which is, I think, the first time we had you on the show. Might have been. No, I, yeah, but, you know, that that was—and that story was in Harper's. So that, that was another one where it was kind of a big jump for me. Okay. Why Dogs Chase Cars, Novel, Drowning in Gruel, Work Shirts for Mad Men, Pep Talks, Warnings, and Screeds, Stray Decorum, between Wrecks, Callous Town, Staff Picks, You Want More, The Curious Lives of Nonprofit Martyrs. Yeah. And your most recent called Asides. Yeah. Now, see, you call them essays. They're, just, they're just little personal essays. You know, what happened was pandemic hit. For some reason, I just started reading a bunch of people's essays. And I went, man, these are really good. Then I thought, you know, like uh, Matthew Fulmer had a couple books of essays and— um, uh, Margaret Wrinkle has one called Late Migrations I liked a lot. There were tons. And I'd been reading 
Boy with Loaded Gun by Lewis Norton that I always loved. And I thought, I should get together all these essays I've written over 30 years and make it into a little collection of essays. Well, unfortunately, Walter, I, I just don't save anything. So I had none of the essays in my computer. I had not saved any of the magazines, really. I had a few. I had, some of them were in books, and I didn't have the books. So I, but, you know, COVID said, what else am I going to do during a pandemic? So I, had, I found some of them online and printed them out and retyped them. Some I had to order the magazines, you know, and then get the magazines, retype them. So it took me six months to get all these that had already been written, you know. Did you get the one from Playboy? Well, that was a short story. So, short story. yeah. You don't so, count that. Okay. No, no. These are all essays. And um, I called it asides because I noticed that I have this quirk of trying to tell a story to someone and then something else will pop in my mind and I'll say, as an aside, and then I go off on that story for a little bit. And usually I've forgotten what I originally started talking about. So that's why I called it that. Also, asides, because since they're all essays, it's kind of an aside from what I'm, what I'm you know, better known for is writing fiction, short stories. I'm looking here at the contents of asides, uh-huh. and I'm seeing some titles that are just, they're grabbing me. For one, uh, how to write stories, lose weight, clean up the environment, and make a million dollars. Where I discovered narrative possibilities, possibly, and a fine restaurant in nowhere, South Carolina, run by a man named, is it Zoo? Sue. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Run by a man named Sue. X-U-E. He's a, he, it's Vietnamese. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's Hmong. Uh, it's in Easley, and yeah. it's called Dozo. He now has two of these restaurants, one in Powdersville and one in Easley. I wrote that for uh, Oxford American, and boy, he's got it framed. He has that article framed in, in his uh, on the wall when you first walk in the door. Um, he had a fascinating story. Um, Sue Yang, great guy. Any, any of these in particular you'd like to share with us? I'd yeah. like to read the one about, uh, you know, I gave a speech one time at an induction of the South Carolina Academy for Authors. Uh, Ron Rash and Dot Jackson and William Price Fox and I were inducted. It's Aristotle in South Carolina that we were talking about earlier. Can I read you just the first yeah. page of that? Sure. Aristotle in South Carolina. Aristotle could not have written the Nicomachean Ethics in the state of South Carolina because that tome is all about moderation, and South Carolina is a big old state of excess only. There is little notion of moderation. We have the beautiful Grand Strand, plus the bottom end of the Blue Ridge Mountains. But then we have that Savannah River nuclear site in Aiken County and the nearly disastrous atomic bomb hole near Florence in Mars Bluff. We have the classic row houses of Charleston, plus more people living in trailers per capita than anywhere else in the United States. We have produced Strom Thurmond of the Dixiecrat era and the forward-thinking Reverend Jesse Jackson. We have BMW, Michelin, and Sunoco, and we have cotton mills that have either burned down mysteriously or faded into skeletal remains to be renovated into outlandishly priced condominiums. There is the peachoid water tower thing outside of Gaffney on I-85, and then the Abbeville Opera House. Just in case anyone thinks the Opera House might be too beautiful for a small town, there's a place called Rough House Billiards a few doors down to even everything back out. We have refurbished and renovated Greenville, but then there is Pedro south of the border down near Dillon. We pride ourselves on good, level-headed, brilliant ex-Governor Richard Riley, who later became the best U.S. Secretary of Education ever. 
And then we have Preston Smith Brooks, who beat the hell out of Senator Charles Sumner with a cane because Sumner compared Brooks to Don Quixote. Who wants to be compared to Don Quixote? There's the incomparable Eartha Kitt, who sang at least one song in French, and the later starred as Catwoman on Batman. And then there's a man named Barney Odom, who had a canine named Flatnose the Tree Climbing Dog, who probably showed up on The Tonight Show more often than Eartha Kitt. <laughs> that okay? That's fine. That's and and I and by the way, I've seen at least one of his appearances on YouTube. Flat I, wa- nose. I watch it all the time. It's the funniest thing. Johnny Carson is so kind to that man and funny and Barney's you know funny as can be. Uh-huh. And that dog going up that tree is just hilarious. Well. Seriously, gentlemen, you need to be reminded that Flat Nose, the tree climbing dog, is in the South Carolina Encyclopedia. Is he really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that is great. <laughs> Did you interview him? Uh, no. no. <laughs> I think he'd passed by then. No, but there was so much publicity. I was over in Florence and uh, I'd given a talk at Francis Marion, I guess, and was staying with Ben Ziegler. And he just mentioned, you ought to. And make sure you include the tree, tree climbing flat nose. And I went and looked up flat nose, and I gave it to the the category of South Carolina. We had you know sub editors, yeah. And I said, of course, this is this is a wonderful story, along with the lizard man of Lee County. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, that, the lizard man was roaming around when I lived in uh, Florence and Darlington. I, I think I still think the lizard man was invented by several of my former students. <laughs> Because I used to talk about the uh, myths that came out of Spanish South Carolina that uh, they reported former inhabitants had been human-sized and they had long tails that they had to dig a hole in to put in the ground and they had died off because there were not enough fish uh, in South Carolina. And they were scaly creatures. So. I, I think you're, given I think the you're, kids I've taught from the PD over the years, I could just see several <laughs> of them turning that into the lizard man. Gosh, uh, you heard it here. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate I hate to do this, George, but Alfred has given me the wind up sign. Yeah, it used to just be visual, but you know now he can break in and you hear his dulcet tone saying, "You guys need to hurry up." Yeah, yeah, so, something like that. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Read more books. South Carolina's special. All right. Well, George Singleton, with your latest book, Asides, colon, Occasional Essays, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walters. It's a pleasure being with you. It was a pleasure having George Singleton back on the journal. His new book is a bit different from his others. Instead of short stories or a novel, George has graced us with a collection of essays. These essays are humorous, some are nostalgic, and all of them will resonate with anyone raised in the South. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. 
New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as on your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon. 